0: Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, all. Welcome
1: back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with you with another special episode. But before I get into the episode, let's want to talk about the reminder that this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute working with a licensed mental health professional uh, or some of the stuff that we deal with on here that isn't also ways that can help you with your mental health. But please seek out someone in your area to work with on that area that is a licensed professional. So today's podcast is one of our under our special program because there is a time clock on that, that there is a project that is presently on Kickstarter that I'm hoping to be able to provide some support to. Now, how this all came about in this podcast was that um those of you who have been following me know that I'm sometimes a player on Symphony Entertainment. And we had a particular option to play a game that came up and we managed to sort things out to be able to do that. And today I happen to have the author, or one of the principal authors of it, on here, who's also here to talk about their Kickstarter that is currently going on, that uh, ends about mid-November, but I'll let them give us the details about that shortly. Now, why this makes it so important is that this particular game was a combination of not only cosmic horror, but queer roleplay. And what we're talking about today is Moonlight on Roseville Beach, which was written uh, by primary uh, editor Richard Bruin. Richard is a writer, TTRP creator, industrial designer, and founder of R. Rook Studios. His 2019 game, Dark Designs, in Ver, Verdiscus, I'll let them
2: Yeah.
1: Anyway was nominated for the IGDN Groundbreaker for Best Setting in 2020. And his 2020 setting, Borrow Keep, Dens of Spies, was nominated for the same award in 2021. He released two historical fantasy games, Sherwood and My Shivery Bromance, in 2022. And he began working on Moonlight on Roseville Beach in 2019. So we welcome Richard Rudin to... Mind untieing knots, minds and souls and tether. Welcome. Hey, thank you, thank you. It's really great to be here. Thank you for having me, and thank you for writing Roseville. It was a fun game to play. So, as I always ask everybody, how did you get here? So, uh, I started running and playing
3: role playing games when I was a preteen or just early early teenager. Sometime in that spot, it's very hard uh, when you're when you're when you're old, like I am to kind of pinpoint the difference between the time you picked up your very first role playing the game and the the time you, you talked like three of your friends into coming over to play it with you. Uh, so sometime, sometime in there in the, the preteen to early teen years, I, I got the D and D basic set, the uh, the magenta box, uh, and brought it home and, and, and convinced people to, uh, to sign on and play it with me. Um, and then that it was sort of a, high school was like a big diversion superhero role-playing games. And we never really connected with more role-playing games. It was the one mm. we never really got to try in high school. And then I, I moved away for a while, uh, for, uh, college and didn't do much there. Um, became very involved in an evangelical church at the time that like evangelicalism was very, uh, anti everything, you know, uh, and, and including being anti-gay and, and anti, uh, Anti RPGs and anti fantasy novels and anything like that, anti horror. Uh, and by the time I left, I, uh, I uh, came back to RPGs uh, shortly after that and came out. Uh, and I connected very deeply with uh, World of Darkness um, mm-hmm. uh, RPG line when it was sort of getting big. Uh, and then eventually got to do a little bit of work for White Wolf as an editor and uh, as a as an occasional writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then did a little bit of work in underground comics uh, for a uh, queer romance series called Young Bottoms and Love um, in the aughts uh, and came back to role playing eventually um, again, sort of after drifting away from world of darkness and getting uh, very involved in, in the comic scene. Uh, and then it was kind of a, a slow drift to realizing that what I really wanted to do was write a, uh, RPGs. Okay.
2: Um,
3: uh, so uh, uh, it, it was uh, in addition, you know, what I really wanted to do for for personal fulfillment um, was write RPGs, and uh, that was, you know, something I started working on. It connects very well with my job in instructional technology, uh-huh. uh, and sort of doing doing a lot of writing there, uh, doing like a, a lot of designing role play scenarios uh-huh. uh, there. Uh, for students to engage in and then sort of moving past that moving into a uh, much more open-ended much more sandboxy uh work and eventually got to publish uh with a, a publication called gauntlet codex um and published in several issues of that uh and then barrakeep was my very first sort of standalone uh piece in 19 or sorry uh yeah. I was talking about old days and then flashback to the 20th century, uh, in 2020, uh, right before pandemic and lockdown hit, we funded that and then immediately sort of had to cease play testing, uh, mm-hmm. and shift to online play testing because we suddenly had like a, you know, no ability to sort of meet and talk in person, uh, mm-hmm. for several months, uh, you know, for, you know, for over a year, really. Um, and that's sort of when I shifted into to writing because it allowed me to, you know, in lieu of seeing actual humans in person, I, you know, I got to spend lots of time just sort of sitting and thinking,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, uh, and, uh, getting a lot of writing stored up, you know, try to use that time to sort of get back in the habit of dedicating a certain amount of time, uh, to writing a certain amount of my energy to writing. Um, and, uh, that, ultimately proved, uh, you know, that 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 sort of trying to take that time and sort of refocus some of the, what I was doing uh, work-wise uh, and wh- what I was doing with uh, uh, my creative work, um, ultimately proved very fruitful. Um, Keep did really well. Uh, and then, you know, three other games between then and the release of Resville Beach. Uh, and then... An old 2019 project, sort of coming back and sort of finding its moment. Um, it had not done particularly well when I released it as a little zine on Itch. and part of that was just like, you know, I'm not a graphic designer, and, and it was a, it was a, a real, it was a real rough-looking little zine. Yeah. Um, and then uh, bringing Dice Sugars on to to work on the art, um, uh, taking the game to Gen Con and getting to run it with people at Gen Con, uh and kind of finding an audience for the game uh hire like i said hiring die and then bringing some of the other writers in and then finally getting to sort of really bring that and help it find you know a, a nice decent audience in its first uh crowdfunding campaign in 2021 and then mm. uh kind of building on that for the second crowdfunding campaign uh this year so
1: all right which ends when it ends on november 17th Okay, so we like uh, definitely uh, yeah, we should definitely get this out there for the so you've got yeah. at least a week or so to find some more yeah. uh, mm-hmm. people to listen or to uh, get in there. But uh so let's go from there. Let's talk more about right Moonlight on Roseville Beach. What is it? why should people be interested in playing with it? How did it come about? Yeah, uh so Moonlight on Roseville Beach kind of started um
3: at a point that I was not consuming or thinking until about it. Like I grew up with lots of horror and then I got mm-hmm. very involved in darkness and uh, both horror and fantasy have sort of been touched major touchdowns in my life. But I like what came out for me in a period where I wasn't taking horror particularly seriously.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and so, uh, I think it, it sort of started as uh, a joke about beach detectives. Um, I thought, you know, well, if we're gonna do beach detectives in a queer community, uh, uh that someone else had made a joke about like an RPG focused on beach detectives. And I was like, if you're gonna do that in a queer community, especially a queer beach community, it can't be cops, can't cops can't be okay. detectives. So like we don't we don't have that sort of historical um relationship with mm. with formal law enforcement that's not that's not abusive, mm. um, especially historically. Um and so I, I started looking at uh, something then at some point I was just like, what if, you know, it's, it's, you know, 30s cosmic horror meets the birth of queer pulp in 1950s mm-hmm. uh, when Anne Bannon started writing and uh, Patricia Highsmith, I cannot remember the name of her pen name at the time, but was writing lesbian kind of romance novels uh, in addition to writing her traditional crime novels. Uh, that everybody associates with Pat Highsmith, and then, uh, uh, and then uh, so many other, uh, the Well of Loneliness, and uh, several other things that either got uh, released as mainstream novels and re-released in pulp format, which happened to a lot of Gore Vidal's work. A lot of you yeah. know, Gore Vidal would picked up by a major publisher, and then, you know, five years later there'd be a pulp edition of it. So, The City and the Pillar is is really sort of like groundbreaking gay novel uh gets re-released as a pulp edition in the 50s and then uh, ann Bannon sort of breaks out and breaks all this uh, all the expectations of queer pulp writers from french line and other and other queer pulps by writing a uh, queer character specifically written for uh, a queer pulp writer uh, who don't uh, always have these terrible endings uh, okay. one of the things that, uh, that queer Pulp had, had sort of started with when you wrote specifically for queer pulp, um, is that relationships either ended with a murder or a suicide, oh, uh, or both. Same. Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like big publishers doing literary novels could get away with, with something much more complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, or much more, in, you know, much more emotionally robust, but but pulp publishers were expected to end with either a murder or a suicide. And Ann Bannon sort of just rejected that mm-hmm. uh, and uh, went on to have everything from emotionally neutral endings mm-hmm. uh, to just uh, happy endings to, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, emotionally complex endings uh, that did not involve a gay person dying
1: which I know is one of the biggest complaints in the parallels it was brought up when Broke uh, Brokeback Mountain came out. As right. the idea. And, and it's ones that we see in a number of other things. Like um, I can think of one of the uh, 13th doctor, doctor who episodes where mm-hmm. a friend and I were sitting there, both of us queer and watching it. And the aspect of, well, thank God they didn't actually do the kill of the, the gay character. At right. the end, yeah. They managed to rescue, him. and it's just mm-hmm. like, had they done that, it's like, uh, yeah, we just the sort of bitterness to the episode being mm-hmm. that this is how this always has to end for us, which is very counter to the idea that many of us do have happy lives. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then it kind of got
3: it mixed with specifically cosmic horror because that was specifically a kind of variant on horror. Uh, That was created specifically for the pulps, Mm -hmm. Um, like gothic predates uh, the gothic, you know, and all of its very, very high literary gothic and very low kind of penny dreadful gothic Mm -hmm. uh, predate the pulps. And uh, a lot of what we think of as horror now wasn't even in existence yet, sort of the, the, you know, at, at the pulp era. Uh, but the, the cosmic horror was something that was sort of born in the Weird Tales era. Mm-hmm. Um and uh I mean, unfortunately, you know, created by by you know, or, or you know, by a talented writer who was a terrible human being. Um uh it, and uh and and definitely picked up by that kind of circle of his friends. But I think there's you know, we've seen especially as so much of the pulp. Canon and, and and the the things created in the pulp era, whether we're talking about queer pulp or or cosmic horror and weird tales, have lapsed into the public domain, yeah. which gives people this kind of powerful ability to respond to to appropriate and respond to uh, what was going on uh, in the in in those in those books, uh, and uh, kind of bring in and, and read uh, experiences that were kind of shut out of those at the time and that continued to be shut out uh in in sort of simplistic read-throughs and sort of respond to them and and build on them and add to them Mm -hmm. um uh largely because uh you know copyright was not was not maintained during an era when it had to be actively maintained Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh so you know both you know that's a beautiful argument for the public domain and and letting people you know respond you know own and respond to things after after a much more reasonable period of time, but it's also uh, uh, those two kind of came together to me fairly naturally, both kind of being born of a need for really popular, really sensationalist, very melodramatic storytelling mm-hmm. um, that uh, that in different ways, both had a little bit of a presence already in the RPG community. You might see queer pulps show up more in the LARP world. Um, you know, and cosmic horror show up you know classically in call of cthulhu or, or mm-hmm. newer games like trail of cthulhu, cthulhu dark um uh but uh but both of those sort of have like grounding and awareness already a little bit in the rpg world um uh, and like a, a burgeoning set of connections between them uh, uh seem to be sort of a a natural development it's sort of like you know where were uh queer people now and then uh Greenland, and Roosevelt Beach moved that timeline up to 1979,
2: mm-hmm. uh, specifically
3: to um you know, to kind of put that to put all that uh those connections into a space that happens after uh Stonewall, but before the Advent of AIDS.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh because I find it really hard to once once you have the Advent of AIDS, I find it very hard to talk about horrors other than. Than the uh, the yeah. man made horror of uh of a uh, the failed government response mm-hmm. to to an epidemic that was killing that was killing uh, lots of queer people.
1: Oh, oh yeah, um,
2: all,
1: yeah. All all of it together comes back to again that messaging, mm-hmm. that idea that to have to have a queer life and so forth was mm-hmm. always to end up in pain. And even right. as a mm-hmm. black man, there's more than enough messages out there that to be not the dominant culture is to end up in pain as well. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, very, very, very
3: much. Uh, and then, yeah, it, you know, during the, during the seventies, you already see the burgeoning movement to try to get people to mainstream the gay people to mainstream themselves and become just like mm-hmm. heterosexuality that becomes much more dominant in the eighties and nineties. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the mainstreaming of gay life or the, um, uh, but in the 70s you still have this, you know, especially in places that are that are queer norm spaces that are set aside for queer people or that queer people have sort of carved out for themselves. Mm-hmm. You see you see this this distinct culture um mm-hmm. still growing up. And it's like any subculture, it's never it's never completely cut off from the larger <laughs> culture around it. It's it's always sort of barring from and hiding in between the 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 margins of and and pulling from. Uh, that culture but you start to see more gay people being specifically out and open in that sort of zone between 1969 and
2: 1980.
3: Mm-hmm. 81, 81 officially and I think 83 like by the time H- between HIV became a thing that people
1: were really concerned about right. um,
3: and then it, also- it was broadly aware of
1: so yeah yeah and then also historically this is about the time where the APA conference happens with,
2: uh, right.
1: with they uh, doctor psychologist in hiding masking mm. their face speaking in front of their colleagues about normalizing mm. their lives right right uh it's it's you know and
3: it's you know it, I'm trying to pinpoint the right word but it's it's almost you know it's surreal to think about that the the sea change that happened with that moment specifically because uh, you know early 70s before that conference you have um you have therapists who are not anti-gay who are engaging in anti-gay therapy because someone came to them and said like i'm not comfortable being gay anymore Mm -hmm. uh so they still like you know i think anthony perkins famously went through uh a uh a therapist who was not anti-gay was not particularly antagonistic towards gay people but he went and said like i i don't want to be gay anymore uh mm-hmm. and so was taken through anti-gay therapy specifically because that's what he asked for mm-hmm. uh and because it was a diagnosis because it was treated as a diagnosable illness so even if the therapist was not antagonistic towards gay people um uh, and i may be i may be mistaken on that, right. i've heard i've heard multiple stories on the on the the context of that but i also my understanding is that she was not a particularly anti-gay person. She but he would, it's a diagnose It was a diagnosable illness. And then when the patient showed up and said, like, would you treat me for this? She was like, I suppose I need to. Uh, because that was still uh, a thing that you were supposed to do if someone showed up and said, I want treatment for this thing.
2: Um,
1: right. even if it's proved to be not the thing that actually needed. And right. Sometimes it's right. T- Especially with where I work also as a, as a my own mental health provider, is how mm-hmm. much are we looking at trauma and what got normalized around oh, yeah. the of trauma and that being okay. Yeah. Which uh-huh. I can also see with some of the NPC or non-playable characters that are present in the book mm-hmm. when when I when I was reading it to later play it us on Symphony. So and so mm-hmm. I as you talked so much about the pulp novels. So that explains a lot of the artwork that we see in there. How much is yes. based off of that? How much of that artwork had to be actually commissioned, and how much was in the public so domain? That everything that Die used was pulled from public domain databases.
3: Oh. Uh, mainly, the the primary source that Die relies on is Wikimedia Commons, and again, that's it's because of that. Uh, Small presses frequently going out of business very shortly after mm-hmm. you know after they released a you know a dozen novels or so, uh, and there's no one left to renew those copyrights in an era when copyright has to be actively maintained. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of those covers and a lot of that art lapsed into the public domain specifically because those those pulp companies were turning over, um, relatively rather relatively regularly. Uh, mm-hmm. I did a ton of a ton of work to sort of go through. Uh, public domain databases um, and identify that work and then uh, did a lot of blending of the work so the cover is an actual blend of three different pulp covers uh, the moon mm-hmm. uh, portion with the beautiful moon in the sky was one cover uh, the woman sitting on the porch was one cover and the the, the woman sort of sitting on the stool is actually a, a pretty famous piece that was used in multiple covers by by uh, I'm going to mess up his name I think it's Paul Radar Paul radar. uh uh and then added and because specifically uh we, we're you know, like we're we you know we want to be on the shelves of games for so we pulled out mm-hmm. a lot of nudity um mm-hmm. uh, 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 like specifically on the cover like uh, there's still there's still sort of like everything in the book still pretty much shows up uh the radar the paul radar piece that we integrated into the cover was uh uh, and I'm going to botch that man. I, I apologize to anyone listening who knows how to pronounce his name correctly. Uh, but uh, uh, but it was specifically sort of we added uh, a bathing suit to uh, that particular a top and bottom two piece bathing suit to that particular uh-huh. bottom, to that particular piece because we you know we know we wanted to be on stores right. uh, and we don't want store employees getting harassed. know we know lots of stores would not particularly stop, but we also don't want store employees having having very concerned people you know protest things um so we we sort of we sort of pulled resisted uh the urge to just kind of use that piece as is um but uh there's certainly you know throughout the book we were able to integrate lots of pieces from so many so many places and did an incredible job with research uh customizing and adjusting those pieces uh isolating figures and putting them on different backgrounds uh and then also finding really old black and white illustrations from the earliest days of the pulps
2: mm-hmm. uh,
3: in the at the end of the at the, at the, end of the beginning of the 20th century um, and then pulling those black and white pieces in. Um, but it's you know, it's that was that was all that was all research on Dye's part as as, as Dye's work as art
1: director. So very nice. Uh-huh. So I guess the question is, what's the elevator pitch to what is moonlight on roseville beach. Oh god gotcha. yeah. Just had a chance if you just had that some sort of elevator pitch to let somebody know what it is.
3: Yeah. Uh I, I call it a mashup of queer pulp and cosmic horror. Uh it is a tabletop role playing game in which uh people play uh residents of the town roseville beach who are living and working in the, in the town for the summer. Uh usually, you know, I, I I try to, you know, pitch uh most people are our newcomers to Roseville Beach. There, this is the first summer they've worked out on the island. Uh, it is a gay beach town, uh, meaning that for the rest of the year, once it, it gets a little too chilly to go in the water, uh, there's not a lot going on in the town. Most, you know, a lot of the residents, you know, go to look for seasonal work somewhere else, mm. uh, and that is, you know, very much grounded in other queer beach towns, especially mm. on, the, on the east side of the of the eastern coast of the U.S. Um, starting with Rehoboth down in Delaware and going all the way up to um uh, uh Cape Cod uh and Provincetown. Mm-hmm. Uh and then the more the, the newer community of Agonquit, uh, which is a fairly queer space, uh, which has become a fairly queer space. Gotcha. Um, much more much more recently. Um, but that whole zone, uh it's it's pretty typical for, for Towns to to largely empty out in the off season, uh, as uh, a lot of people employ their shift and, and go for seasonal work elsewhere, uh, and that's definitely the, the the map of the town is from uh, it's from Cherry Grove, New York. And I keep getting be- be- pulled away from the elevator pitch, uh, <laughs> executive function issues there. Uh, but yeah, the elevator pitches you are you are living and working there, and by by, by night you are also protecting the town from supernatural horrors. Uh, so everybody has had uh, has a, a place they came from they have a job on the island and they also have a strange thing they've seen on the island that sort of showed them that something that things are up that, that that weird things are going on hmm. um, and uh so that's kind of the the core of character creation and then uh, it's a very otherwise a straightforward sort of supernatural investigative mystery game with a with kind of a horror comedy bent um uh, there's lots of puns and gags and jokes throughout the text. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's the, it's, it's a little bit of flexibility on the GM's part of like, how grim do you want to go? How serious do you want to go? Hmm. Uh, or be very tongue in cheek about it.
1: Or be, yeah, be completely tongue in cheek. Uh, um, which is another of uh, the, uh, I would say not just the pulps you talked about, but something about the... So I would say b rate movies of the seventies as well. Definitely,
3: definitely. Um, especially, I'm a huge fan of sixties uh, and seventies uh, Hammer films, mm-hmm. um, when uh, Hammer just sort of embraced the over-the-top, carnivalesque nature mm-hmm. of horror filmmaking. And you know, certainly they've always done great horror movies, but there was some time in the sixties and the mid-seventies. That they just sort of embrace that kind of carnival, carnival-esque nature of horror movies, and you have uh, something I'm going to watch before. Probably, if I if I don't do anything else, Halloween night I'm going to be watching uh, Curse of the Crimson Altar and Vampire Circus, which are two of my my absolute favorite Hammer films, and they're both big, over-the-top, um, you know, absurd costumes and dream sequences and and uh, and uh, all kinds of all kinds of kind of carnival-esque moments uh that i you know that i just really appreciate the hammer films and, and sort of bringing bringing that sort of zone in to do horror on roseville beaches is, is is one of the big inspirations for me
2: mm-hmm.
1: well especially you talk about hammer where uh, hammer films for and as far as i can tell that was also mm-hmm. the beginning places where you had horror where it wasn't the happy ending yeah yeah, you had the sort of evil or whatever it was being so insurmountable that, okay, the characters, mm-hmm. they might have put up yeah. a good fight, but they ended up dead at the end or in mm-hmm. some very miserable place at the end of it. They certainly borrowed a lot from that from the, from the cosmic horror mm-hmm.
3: uh, vein uh, a lot of times. And you had like a mix. You had like people who like were self sacrificing and sort of made sure Mm-hmm. uh that uh that uh you know other people got to survive um and then you had but you also had like oh you know everything ended up all right but everybody learned something terrible terrible and despite everybody surviving you're everybody's despondent which i think is the mm-hmm. the the end of vampire circus and then everybody uh of those two you know nothing works out for anybody and it all ends badly is certainly curse of the crimson altar um mm-hmm. And then you also had that. You had a little bit of that show up in American horror um, in the seventies. You know, even leading up, even before sort of Halloween or the the lead up to the the big uh, slash slasher boom that Halloween set off. Right. Um, well, I mean, oh, Bob's yeah. a perfect
1: example of that. How do you? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Creature, not either from the stars or from the uh, biological labs mm-hmm. that are creating these problems yeah 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 and then uh
3: yeah and several and, and, and you, know, you know you have things like hammer satanic rites of dracula where nothing ends happily for anybody and, and
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, you know dracula is certainly going to come back in another you know another satanic cult can bring dracula back any moment now mm-hmm. um so uh yeah there's so there's you know that was sort of a big inspiration and, and sort of one of the things that sort of i think less deliberately sort of got me to think about this in the 60s and 70s as the setting for this but you know a lot of that was also like where do you you know where is a spot where queer people started to think that they could or started to feel like you know success uh in living a life that's you know quasi open or in any sense uh possible um mm-hmm. uh, and certainly stonewall was a big part of that um you know, Supreme Court starting to strike down obscenity laws, which, you know, certainly like, certainly, you know, bracketed gay literature and bracketed mm-hmm. gay clubs. Um, and uh, so there was, you know, some sort of this, the seventies the were sort of a perfect time in many, many ways. Uh, mm-hmm. And then 79 was, you know, also um, it was the year of uh you know probably disco's most important year when donna summer came out with bad girls and was in mm-hmm. leading up to that uh had been on so many different movie soundtracks leading up to that uh blondie was huge right um and so so much of the music we think of as cornerstone of 70s gay culture was really sort of was sort of like coming out in 1978
1: 1979 so yes okay. well you know i think that's a good place for us to take a break so- all right Stay tuned for our second half here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls and Tethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with Richard Rue, chief Chief editor of Moonlight on Roseville Beach. So stay tuned, folks. We'll be back shortly.
3: see what Voice America is up to behind
0: the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it. So you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at UntangleAndGrowCounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit UntangleAndGrowCounseling.com for more information. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to share success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Hear about personal growth, building a better business, inspirational life stories, and personal branding. You'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Succeed. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to clark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's clark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program.
1: Hello all. welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed spiritual and family therapist, here with Richard Rue, uh, chief uh, editor and uh, writer on Moonlight and Roseville Beach, which is presently on Kickstarter. Uh, and that has that the Kickstarter is ending November 17th. So, ideally, by the time you hear this, it should be about the uh, towards the end of that period of time, as soon as I could get it out of here. Uh, but let's talk a bit, a little bit about the Kickstarter and okay. what are the options and things that are coming up with this Kickstarter. So, uh,
3: when we initially funded in 2021 and then uh, came out at the end of 2022 early 2023 uh we really just had paperback books uh we did a a little over a thousand print run um uh, because that you know a thousand seems wildly ambitious for a small press role-playing game uh some days it does um and uh and then uh we really just had what was in the book we had a few sort of digital tools we have a kind of a safety a safety worksheet and consent worksheet uh character character sheets some little online play tools but other than that we did you know everything was in the book um and uh one of the things we wanted to do was the game has been out for almost a year uh, we really sort of uh had a soft launch where the the game became the game's text became digitally available about a year ago mm-hmm. Uh, And I really wanted to add a hardback options. Probably the the leading thing I get asked about is will we ever do a hardback, uh, which means we needed to fund a a hardback print run, uh, help offset the cost of doing another additional print run for paperbacks, uh, Mm -hmm. because we're getting down to 300. um, And we've, you know, so we've sold, we've sold through a lot in the past uh, six months uh since we uh got an Emmy Award uh in August, which is one of the one of the larger gaming award mm-hmm. uh, programs. And then um and so it's been you know sales have been picking up from that. Um and uh, we also uh I really wanted to make sure that we're more mysteries coming out because we have five in the book that's a lot for, mm-hmm. that's a lot for some group they're very you know they're one-shot focused mysteries we got to play one of them when we were on uh mm-hmm. when we did this entertainment stream um but uh and in, in, in that's probably going to fill a lot of what most people want out of a out of a out of a season but what i wanted to put some more out there and i wanted it to be from writers who had not been part of the initial
2: mm-hmm. uh
3: roseville beach uh, release. So we, we, I wanted to do something called, I called the Rose Island Mystery Series, um, uh, in 2024, where we would have a, a, a kind of a subscription based mystery series.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and then, uh, and then, you know, and get some hardbacks out there, uh, as well as get some money to offset the, the cost of printing and doing another print with paperbacks. Um, so that's, that's sort of a uh, kind of what's out there right now. Uh, we have a lot of people, I think about half our backers did not know of, or have any experience with Roseville beach when they started, mm-hmm. uh, when, when, they came to us. So this is, it's a lot of people who are having their very first experience with Roseville beach. It's a lot of people who are having their, um, uh, first time getting a print run of Roseville beach. A lot of them have only gotten the digital, the PDF or the EPUB before. Uh, and so, uh, we're, I'm really excited to sort of get that out in people's you know, physical books back in people's hands mm-hmm. um, and make sure that we don't have a, a big sort of a big gap of, of books not being available for several months next year. I know that's always, uh, whenever you publish anything independently, one of your, one of your big stresses, it's that your book's going to disappear for a few months on the market shelves because you, you know, you waited, you, and I've had this happen before, where you wait till the last minute to sort of, uh, get your copies out there. Um, or to get copies reordered. So we want to make sure that we're kind of thinking ahead, um, and prepared for prepared for any copy shortages so that as much as possible, we can keep games going to stores. Uh, the game is still exceptionally well in stores. Uh, so I want to make sure that stores are still able to get copies. I feel like I'm, I'm very fortunate that, that, uh, an overwhelming number of my, um, of sales have been, uh, to stores, uh, to retail stores um thankfully i think i'm very grateful our partners at, at indie Press revolution uh and plus one exp for getting it out of the distribution oh. um so that stores can easily find it and buy it uh, but that's it? The, the majority of our sales are are to retail stores or where things get picked up and uh, uh the book does just especially well there so it's you know the kickstarter is partially for getting us in there and partially for getting new writers to write ritual beach content Uh, and it's also a chance to pick up, we, you know, starting this summer, we started doing a Roseville Beach zine series, which little short, uh, zine, you know, sort of zine size, uh, adventure modules, or, you know, um, we have a a little, we have a wonderful little monster book, uh, because we don't use monster stats. Mm -hmm. So it's really just, uh, documents that you can give your players to help them investigate a creature that showed up on Roseville Beach. It was written by Nora Rose, a great Canadian writer. Um, and then, uh, some character options. We're, we're p- coming out with kind of a, a long form mystery. It's about, you know, it can be much longer than the mysteries in the book, mm. um, that we've been working on for a very long time. Uh, and I think next year we've got a new mystery coming from Sharon Biswas for the zine series. And then we have a whole new kind of campaign framework coming from, um, uh, core, an Argentinian writer, a queer Argentinian mm. writer, uh, uh, that is about sort of road tripping to Roseville beach. It's about the, the, the adventures you have when you set out to eventually get to Roseville beach sometime in the late winter, early spring of of 1979. Um, and the adventures you have along the way, as you pass through towns with your sort of queer group of friends who are planning to spend the summer, their first summer on Roseville beach. Uh, but they set out sometime in March, April, uh, knowing that it's going to take a while to get there. Um, and uh, you know, encounter haunted houses and, and local horrors and, and mm-hmm. all sorts of things in the communities they pass through, and sort of, and sort of, uh, uh, kind of come to terms with Americana and dealing with America in the '70s, uh, while also being queer and, and uh, aware of the supernatural world around them. So,
1: which kind of also touches yeah. on what existed uh, for quite a while, especially in the African American community, the Green Book. It sort of brings the question: mm-hmm. like What was the equivalent for the queer community as well? And, yeah,
2: you know where it was, the stage yeah, of
1: problem where it wasn't.
2: Uh,
3: I think, and I am blanking on the name of, but there were there were a, a beginning section of queer travel guides in the seventies and eighties. So. Uh, one of them. I'm sorry. Which one? I think Spartacus was one of them. That was the one. That was the name I was trying to think of. Uh, but Spartacus, I think, kind of. Cre- I, I believe, if I if I remember correctly, Spartacus kind of created the genre. Well, hmm.
1: uh, at least the queer version
3: of it. Yeah, yeah, and that's also the period when I think that uh, P Flag Parents from em- fa- that, which or- originally was just parents of lesbians and gays hmm. uh, at that time, but eventually became parents from em- fa- friends and families of lesbians and gays. uh, Used to run hotlines in various oh. communities across the country uh, that were partially—I mean, partially—they were help hotlines, but partially they were just like, "Where do I connect with other queer people living in this, in this in this space?" Hmm. Um, so PFLAG used to run a lot of, you know, and then we also saw the the, the burgeoning, uh, we, you know, we, I feel like when I came out in the '90s and '00s, um, we sort of made fun of them. But they were, at the time, a really important sort of community resource, uh, both like the the really basic sort of baby queer papers. Like, you know, mm-hmm. we had really serious ones in big cities, but even in little towns, you used to have them. And just basic bar rags, what we used to call just bar rags, where you just those little magazines that had ads and and, uh, and personal ads and, and like, you know, like listings, of what was going on. Uh, because there were no other places to get that info, uh, those little mm-hmm. sort of bar newsletters um and uh and you know and eventually they became sort of you know light nightlife connections and and uh you know and a lot of them have faded and disappeared as as the need for them has disappeared but you know those were and you know were once really important because there were no other spaces to really to really figure out how did people find out where the gay bars were you know yeah. there wasn't a section in the there wasn't a section of you know
1: gay bar in the phone directory uh mm-hmm. And just as equally, the aspect of, like you said, with this campaign, how long it Mm -hmm. took to get from one part of the country to another, compared Mm -hmm. to now with the multitude of jumping on the jet plane, you had to do a lot of things like car travel.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, there was no budget air travel at the time in most of the country. There were a handful of budget airlines, but certainly none of them were going... Two major, you know, for a lot of a lot of part, a lot of budget airlines weren't going to major cities. Mm. Um, You know, Southwest was, you know, pretty much just serving little bits of Texas and California. Uh, And I think they had just gotten into LA, LAX. That was the first kind of big um, major metropolitan airport is getting into LAX. Uh, But nothing on the East Coast. Mm. There was nothing that would, you know, Southwest wouldn't get you to the East Coast. There weren't a lot of other budget airlines that were going to get you to the East Coast. And certainly even budget airlines, when you had five friends you wanted to travel with, that was super expensive. Uh, And it was way easier just to pile into your VW van and and go places. And people wondered why the VW van became so iconic. But it was partially just because there weren't a lot of other ways to get you and your your community to somewhere else uh, from college or from where the town you were living in.
1: Yeah, we're still before the big 80s mass uh, A-team vans. And these were pre to the minivans of today. So yeah. Oh yeah. 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 The VW. Uh,
3: yeah. yeah. Uh, and even though I don't think they were making VW vans anymore by the late 70s, they were still everywhere.
2: You
3: mm-hmm. uh, saw them all over the place uh, because they were so, because they they just become like very functional and, and and easy places to get, easy ways to get large number of, a decent number of people from one space to another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, and that's why it was an iconic part of Scooby-Doo, you know, yep. and of the the mystery genre starting in the '60s, uh, or yeah. the uh, the mystery cartoon genre starting in the '60s. Is, uh, you know, if you wanted four of your friends to go places, you certainly couldn't rely on a sports car. Uh, if you needed to take a lot of equipment, you probably weren't going to take it in a in a uh, in a uh, in a sedan. Right. So you needed either a station wagon or a van or something like that to
1: to sort of get from place. And the station wagon had the reputation of always being the family vehicle. So it wasn't being used for that. It was the umpteen number of kids with the quote-unquote soccer mom of that time. Yeah. Done with it. Yeah. Yeah. And how very unqueer but all heteronormative that was. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with the wood paneling. Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that tacky, tacky wood paneling. We had one of those. uh um, can't say that I ever did, but yeah, that was a different time, a different era. But, <laughs> that's how the, I had to learn to drive in a wood paneled station wagon. So, yeah. Oh, my. So, all right. So then let's move on to one of the other topics. And when uh, time we got left, uh, how did this relationship with Symphony come about? Since that's one of your stretch goals, which is an actual eight. For actual play that would come with this stretch goal? Uh,
3: so in March, during um, PAX East, which I did not get to go to this year,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, I'm not very far from Boston, but I didn't get to go to PAX East this year. Uh, during uh, during that time, uh, uh, Bridget Jeffries just sort of uh, of Symphony Entertainment, the founder of Symphony and the the sort of powerhouse behind Symphony just sort of messages me out of the blue, uh, and say mm-hmm. like, Hey, I just saw your game at, at a, at a, at, at a, and it's, I think it's Paradox Games, which runs mm-hmm. IPR for PAX and, uh, PAX East and PAX Unplugged. Um, and is really excited by it. Um, and I was like, "This is this is really fantastic." And I I, I started connecting with Bridget a little bit,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
3: and then uh, really get to talk to her a lot in sort of April and May, and we start planning uh, the what became the one shot stream in June as part mm-hmm. of like Pride Month, which also was uh, this year celebrating independent horror games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, a mutual friend of mine and uh, Graham Walmsley, a mutual friend of mine, and Bridget's connected me to go to another online convention called the week with good friends by the good friends of jackson Elias, which has long been one of my favorite horror rpg podcasts Mm -hmm. Uh, when i had no connection to horror rpgs at all i would listen to good friends because it was just such a smart insightful podcast i joked with bridget that she introduced me to paul fricker uh, and I think everybody else in the world is like, "Oh my God, Paul Fricker! He made Call of Cthulhu Seventh Edition." I was like, "Oh my God, Paul Fricker! He made he makes good friends with Jackson Elias." Um, uh, hi, Paul. It's great to it, 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 I love your podcast. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we get to show up together for a week and good friends, and get to be on a couple of panels together. I get to be on the panel with Drina, who was also mm-hmm. on the, the Symphony Entertainment there. Uh, and then when Bridget and I both get to Gen Con in person, we get to do, spend a lot of time hanging out. We get to play games with people from Chaosium and people from Wet Inc.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and, uh, just became really good friends, uh, over that sort of the Gen Con weekend. Uh, um, and I, I, had been told in advance, like, you know, you know, Bridget is a char- charismatic, warm person and that did not prepare me for meeting Bridget at
1: all um, <laughs> especially and, when you... a,
3: a, a charismatic warm force of nature
1: yeah you um, get one of her cl- her hugs that actually does physically move you across the room
3: <laughs> yes yeah yeah uh, hi Bridget like, yeah just a charismatic warm force of nature um, and a, a, a relentless source of encouragement uh, and uh, and and uh, and so we got to hang out again at Big Bad Con. Um, and uh, we'd been, you know, continue to be friends there. And then uh, shortly before launching this, I realized like, hey, you know, I am actually going to just set this Kickstarter. There is always a temptation to Kickstarter to set it below the amount you yeah. really need or that you, yeah. you ultimately totally need. And yeah. just like, okay, well, at least we'll fund if I hit this level and I can I can carry the rest of that money myself, mm-hmm. um, and there's a certain wisdom to that because you know otherwise if you fall short you get nothing, right? Uh, as opposed to like falling five hundred dollars short and getting three hundred you know thirty five hundred dollars and five hundred dollars of your own money mm-hmm. uh, and making it. There's a certain wisdom to being like yeah set it to thirty three thousand because you and you can carry like x amount of money you know x amount of money you need you know you'll at least right. get three thousand. Um, uh, but I was like, no, I'm just going to set it to what I actually need. Um, uh, after working with several printers and getting several really good quotes, um, and then, uh, so set it to what I need, added the money I needed back in for, um, to pay for the the mystery series, uh, mm-hmm. which Bridget was one of the writers in the mystery series. shortly after we met at Ginco, I was like, "Do you just want to just want to be the writer one of the writers for this mystery series?" Mm-hmm. Uh, really enthusiastically said yes. Um, and I think she's the only person in on the mystery series who's not like a local person in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and then uh, shortly before, I was like, "Well, if we go over." You know, I you know, I can clearly think of lots of things to do with the money. But the thing that I'm most excited about is putting money back into the larger world of queer and marginalized creators making horror, making horror content for RPGs and horror mm. content for adventures, streams, actual play, podcast. Um because I, I think that horror is such a powerful, useful, wonderful genre. That has Mm -hmm. so much going on in it. It has everything from really heroic horror, like Clive Barker's *Nightbreed* Mm -hmm. or uh, Catherine Bigelow's uh, *Near Dark*, which are very much about heroism. Or you have, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have horror that's about tragedy, that's about despair, that's about. um, uh, You have just just horror, such a powerful genre for the ways it connects with uh, different sorts of human emotions. Mm-hmm. um and bring and, and and clearly horror connects beautifully with other things that rely on human melodrama so horror and romance or horror and romantic tragedy um um horror and you know i think one of the reasons we see so many horror monsters come out in YA fiction uh is that YA fiction is so you know constantly relentlessly dealing with where do i fit in this world mm-hmm. uh, and horror has such a way of messing up and problematizing the way we expect the world to work um and she so has this long tradition of sort of messing up and, and problematizing the way we expect the world to work um so i said I, shortly before the kickstarter launch i said bridget do you just want to be a sh- like symphony entertainment to be a stretch goal where i would give you uh, and we talked about a, a, a specific figure and I, I don't like to talk about specific uh, we don't so, have- like i said like yeah yeah Uh, I said, like, what about if I give you either a grant or a sponsorship for X amount of money? Mm -hmm. Um, and like on the vague agreement that you're going to do something with Roseville Beach, but I don't have creative control of what you do. Like you're not, Mm -hmm. you're not, you know, Mm -hmm. you're going to do something multi, multi session with Roseville Beach, but I'm not going to have creative control of that or any sort of like veto power or Mm -hmm. anything. And Bridget was super enthusiastic. I talked to, uh, a few other, um great uh you know actual plays and podcasts mm-hmm. uh, about doing the sponsorship too so i think once we finish working with bridget we're going to get to work with Anne the gnome uh who runs a uh, queer stream mainly focused on D mm-hmm. uh and video games and then i think after that we're going to work with plus one exp uh which wish- recently sort of broke off from its kind of corporate overlords and is now uh, run individually by Tony Lucinda and co-owned by two queer people who've been working with him on that stream since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know he was really excited to get uh, Keegan and Sarah involved in sort of owning and managing uh, that that kind of organization, that company, uh, and having some authority instead of just kind of being sort of quasi-volunteer, kind of right. quasi-employee. Um, And so it's really, really interesting and and really exciting to get to work with those three different. And then also we're, you know, one of our stretch goals is to give as a core who's, you know, working on that a chance, a grant to expand, uh, her work on that one issue about, you know, that road trip issue of of the original big scene, uh, into either a game or a, a mini game or go in any sort of direction she wants to go with that, that's not necessarily under my editorial control. And like, once once she's done, she and I'll get to talk about like, do you want me to publish it? Do you want to publish it? Do you want to fund it? Uh, do you want to bury it and never think about it again? Like, you know, uh, yeah. but get a grant out to, to, as a core to sort of talk about like, say, like, what is, you know what, you know, what do you want to do with this? Uh, beyond like me having, you know, writing for a zine series that I ultimately am the editorial control mm-hmm. over and I'm publishing. Um, what do you want you know how do you take this idea and play with it and see what you want to do with it and she was really super enthusiastic about that so we'll be doing a grant uh you know if we make that for her so it's it, that's that's sort of how we, we took a lot of what bridget and i had done this summer um and i want to see about like um you know getting roseville beach stuff out there that's not created
1: by or for me or that's
3: um, necessary that's
1: just yeah. the already pre-made module that's in the, yeah. uh, in the game showing some of its versatility of how it can be used as mm-hmm. a setting
2: for right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So
3: uh, and without me running the show, because I feel like that's also very important. You want to give people sponsorships or grants. Uh, clearly, there's a place for like, hey, I'm sponsoring you. Could you make this thing for me uh-huh. to support my Kickstarter or whatever? But I think there's also one of the things I'd really love to see is just more people saying like, Hey, here's a thing I'd like you to play with it and do what you're going to do. Because I think one of the most important things that role playing games do is eventually give up control. Like eventually you don't even very tightly frame things. Like eventually you're going to play lady blackbird or, or apocalypse world or Cthulhu dark. Uh, and the baker's, and John Harper and Graham Walmsley are not mm-hmm. in charge. Once they once that gets to your table, they're they're not at charge anymore. Uh, and I'd love to see that happen a little more uh, with sponsoring APs,
1: which becomes an, on, a, on the mental health side of it uh, mm-hmm. quite an advantage and a place that a lot of people get to finally have that explore and control, which you don't necessarily mm-hmm. get in life, and especially if you're in some of these places where you are always looking over your shoulder to live. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So because I look at it this way. I'm looking forward to having this uh reach that point for just for the uh book itself, but also for the AP, which I know as we're recording it right now, you're like under a hundred dollars away from hitting that stretch goal for the AP. Yeah. So and just refreshing the page now. And I think yep, we are like we I think we're eighty-six dollars away. So so by the time this airs, hopefully we will finally cross that goal mm-hmm. and uh we'll be able to Bridget will be looking to start planning that out. Who knows, maybe my character of uh, Solomon Hope will be able to come back for that. I sure hope so, because
3: Solomon kicked ass. Solomon was a lot
1: of fun. Thank you. And and, and
3: like big friggin' flirt. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Putting on my leather daddy components there. Oh Uh, yeah, definitely, 100%. uh, And which is also showing the uh, breadth and span of the various ways we are as queer people. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and one
3: of the reasons I think it's important for me not to have like this control over APs or, or people trying to riffing on the system or building, building off of the system and doing their own thing is it's, I don't have a definitive queer experience. And I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm coming to realize I'm not sure there is a definitive queer experience. I had like the the long closeted period and the mm-hmm. and, uh, really struggling to come out. And, and, uh, uh, and that's not where, everybody is and that's not what everybody went through um and rather than like me saying like hey here's who you know here's what here's what's really roseville beach is about uh i want to see sort of people bringing in their own sense of horror their own sense of horror, mm-hmm. their own sense of coming out and, ide- and, and forming identity um all the bringing all those things together um, and, and and sort of, you know, Roseville Beach is ultimately a setting, it's a nice set of rules, but like the, the rules are not nearly as
1: important as that kind of, that meeting of horror and queerness, which I don't have the definitive interpretation of. Very so, good. Yeah. So where can folks find you to support you, mm-hmm. the, the Kickstarter and such, uh, as we wrap up? Yeah, uh, you can find me at r-rook.studio,
3: and that is my website, or you can find me, you know, no spaces, no dashes, no anything, just r-rook studio on both Twitter and Blue Sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if you just, you know, wherever fine internet is sold, as my friend Darrow Ross likes to say, uh, r-rook studio uh, on on itch or all sorts of other, all, you know, dice camp, all sorts of other places, just, uh, you know, you can Google us, start looking for r.rook or r-rook on, on other sites and you can find us there. But those the the three big ones are my website, r-rook.studio, uh, and then R-Rook Studio on both Twitter and Blue Sky uh, okay. are the the places I'm most active and it's probably easiest to
1: to track me down there. So and we will try to have the Kickstarter link also in the show notes mm-hmm. as well. So please folks go out there and uh support it and also introduce it to those If you're a gaming group or you know some queer people who like games and geek them and such, introduce it to them so that uh, we can see this made and there's more of our stories out there as well. Great. Fantastic. So, Richard, I want to thank you for being on here and glad I could help try and promote the uh, Kickstarter too. Harry, it's great to see your face. (laughs) Uh, And
3: I, yeah, it's, it's, thank you so much for having me
1: not a problem so just for those uh, uh, out there it's like I'm not getting any type of kickback from this I'm the kickback I'm getting from this is continuing to get a chance to play and that's the thing I'm looking forward to as well whether it's Solomon or something else I have to I can create fantastic all right all right so thank, thank you, you so much and we'll be back for another episode soon so stay tuned here on untying knots minds
0: and souls and tethered
1: have a blessed one folks bye
0: Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.